Welcome to the Carolinas, where serial killers, abductions, and mysterious circumstances are abundant. Join me, Tiffany, and my co-host Sam, two moms, as we cover local true crime cases that will leave you wanting more. Tune in every weekend for our new episodes where we rotate between North Carolina and South Carolina true crime cases. Find us on all major podcast platforms like Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and iHeartRadio, and follow us on our social media. We're on Instagram at Cola City Crime, and you can find our Facebook page by searching our name, Cola City Crime. Hi, everybody. Welcome back. This is episode 76 of True Crime B&B. I have with me a special guest. This is Tiffany from Cola City Crime. I would really love for Tiffany to kind of give you a rundown on her own podcast. Thank you, Beth, for having me on. My name is Tiffany, and I am one of the co-hosts for a true crime podcast called Cola City Crime. My other co-host name is Sam. She's not here today, unfortunately. We host Cola City Crime, which is a true crime podcast that focuses primarily on cases from the Carolinas, so North Carolina and South Carolina. And we kind of get our name from the city of Columbia. That is the capital of South Carolina. We live in South Carolina. And cola is the term that people kind of refer to it as they also kind of refer to it as soda city so we kind of combine the two to make it cola city crime okay well it's a great name and i had a complete misconception about where the name came from i thought maybe there was some manufacturing district or something that made colas in the city (laughs) where you live so that's really cool and i'm very happy to have you today and i'm especially glad that you're going to be our bad guy today (laughs) yeah i'll gladly take that role i have no problem that's kind of what we do best on our podcast unfortunately (laughs) yeah and do i have a case for you today typically like i said we kind of cover north and south carolina cases that's our scope of typical cases. However, I am from Florida, born and raised until about 22 years old, and then we were transplants into South Carolina. So I thought today that I would bring you a case from my notorious home state of Florida. Well, that sounds great. There's no shortage of crazy cases from Florida. (laughs) Right, and that's actually right here in my notes. I just wanted to put that disclaimer out there. A lot of people hear like the crazy Florida man cases. You know, you can almost Google your birth date with the the words Florida man in there and pull up some crazy cases related to it, which I highly encourage you to if you have not yet. It's hilarious. (laughs) But today we're, we're kind of playing off that Florida man joke, but I'm actually going to bring you a story about a Florida woman. So when I say Florida woman, I could admit that this individual, her name is Bobby Sue Terrell, is not a Florida native, but she is a transplant from the tiny town of Woodlawn, Illinois. I will preference her story by saying, by no means am I excusing the behavior we're about to discuss, but her childhood was quite challenging, to say the least. Well, as a Midwestern girl from birth, I can tell you that we are just as crazy in the Midwest as you guys are in Florida. (laughs) Yeah, Florida gets a bad rap, and I know it's kind of just a melting pot of all different types of people, so (laughs) I'll claim it. It's fine, but now I've kind of transitioned over into South Carolina, which I love very, very much, so it holds a special place in my heart. Miss Bobby grew up very shy. She was a little overweight and she was very outspoken with her religious beliefs, super involved in the church throughout her childhood. She also had seven siblings and unfortunately four of her brothers were afflicted with muscular dystrophy. Two of those sadly passed away due to the disease when she was in her early 30s. That's tragic to have one family with that much just loss. Right. 
and it and it gets a little worse as we go along unfortunately but despite her family struggles she was a star student she loved to sing in church she had a beautiful voice and after she graduated high school she decided to pursue a career in nursing and three years later she became an rn sounds promising right it does Well, unfortunately, Bobby had some mental health struggles she was dealing with rather privately, and those began to shine after she married her husband, Danny. Bobby was struggling to manage her schizophrenia and the medication that came along with that, and I'm sure that learning she would never be able to have children of her own did not help her mental health state at all. Wow, she's just gotten one slam after another one. She just can't catch a break, can she? Right. No breaks for her at all. And unfortunately, she doesn't really help herself in that scenario either. Right. Their marriage would collapse after adopting a son that would later be hospitalized for a drug overdose. So her husband had accused her of drugging their own son with her tranquilizers that she took for that schizophrenia. This would lead to them divorcing and she would eventually lose all custody of the child. Do you think that she actually did do that? Given what I'm about to tell you within these next couple paragraphs, I I think so, unfortunately. Oh man. Yeah, not not good, not looking too good for Miss Bobby. So with all those mental health challenges she had been experiencing prior to losing the custody of her son, it initially would get worse and further decline, and she would be hospitalized over five times for various medical issues, and then additionally would admit herself into a mental health facility, and she would stay there for over a year to receive psychiatric treatment. Well, the positive here is that she recognized that she needed to be treated, and she actually went and had herself admitted. Absolutely, and I will give her that. That's the only thing I will give her, is that she admitted herself. That's too quick to give her credit. Yeah, unfortunately, that is the case here. I could honestly spend the entire time that I'm allotted for this case talking about the mental health issues and the the physical health issues that she went through. We'll touch on that a little bit later, but I don't want to spend too much time because the story just ramps up from here. There's plenty more to tell, huh? Absolutely. Okay. So she would eventually move to St. Petersburg, Florida in July of 1984, and then would quickly obtain her nursing license in August, so the following month. Mm -hmm. Needless to say, after her move to the Tampa Bay area, Bobby would drift from job to job, and really, she couldn't keep one due to all the mysterious ailments that she was having throughout her time period there, and she would eventually settle into a shift supervisor role at St. Petersburg North Horizon Health Center, working overnight from 11 to 7 in the morning, which is also known as the graveyard shift. And boy, did it live up to his name with Bobby working there. Oh, no. Yeah. This does not bode well. It does not. Just four short months after moving to Florida and an even shorter time of her working at the health center, strange things started to happen with some of the patients. A 97-year-old woman named Aggie Marsh, who was originally thought to pass away due to her advanced age, was pronounced dead on November 13, 1984. And here's where I will warn everyone that it definitely ramps up from here. Okay. Normally, a death at the age of 97 wouldn't be of huge concern, and personally, I would think that it was due to natural causes. However, some eyebrows would perk up when just a few days later, a 94-year-old woman named Anna Larson almost died due to an insulin overdose. Mm. Was she on insulin? 
There's the kicker. She was not a diabetic, which means she did not need insulin. And in that facility, insulin was stored in a locked cabinet. And do you want to take a wild guess at who was the only individual to hold the keys to that cabinet? Mm, just, just a totally wild guess. Maybe Bobby? Oh, ding, ding, ding. Correct. Miss Bobby Terrell was the only one to hold the keys to this cabinet. Good grief. Right. Only 10 days after the first mysterious death of Aggie Marsh, a third victim would die due to an insulin overdose again. And this was 85-year-old Lethe McKnight, which was also when Bobby was on duty. Good grief. She's like a Charlie Cullen. I'm saying. Oh my gosh. That's, that's horrifying. To send your, or not maybe send, but to have your loved one in the hospital and maybe doing better and then all of a sudden... Somebody just decides they're going to squirt something into their IV and now they're dead. That's just disgusting. Exactly. You know, that kind of breaks the trust of the healthcare system, especially when you have family members that get to their later stages in life. That's super concerning for me. 100%. And it should be for anybody. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I wouldn't trust it. If I have the capacity and one of my parents needs that type of care when they get, you know, into their later advanced years of life, I would absolutely try and do my best to have a private caregiver or something take care of them or you know help them myself because it's just really scary to hear stories like this and just place your blind trust in a facility where anything could go awry oh wow i can't even imagine i can't even imagine me neither that same night where the death of 85-year-old Lethe McKnight happened, a fire broke out in the hospital linen closet and it was assumed that the fire was due to arson Two nights after that, another two patients, 79-year-old Mary Cartwright and 85-year-old Stella Branham, unexpectedly passed away. So she killed two people in one night. Yep, that's how it looks. Oh, my God. So the next day, which was a Monday, it was actually considered one of the worst experiences the health center had ever seen by the other staff. They actually, in one of the articles that I was reading through, dubbed it their own personal holocaust. Five more patients mysteriously passed away, literally back to back in quick succession. And nobody is thinking that maybe she has something to do with this? Well, they were quickly on to her case after this because that night, the health center would receive a strange message from an anonymous caller that seemed to be a woman's voice whispering that five patients have been murdered in their beds. So do you think that was her? I think so. It doesn't say in anywhere that I could find that it was actually her, but that's my best guess because... Who else would have known that? Exactly. And police would be called to the scene in the early morning hours of the following day, November 27th, and they would find Bobby suffering from a stab wound in her side. Self-inflicted? She would go on to blame a prowler that broke into the rest home, but surprisingly, this is not what piqued the attention of investigators. But in actuality, they were more concerned about the fact that 12 patients had died within the last 13 days. Of course, that's horrifying. Exactly. Not normal for the facility at all. So a full investigation would ensue, and in early December, just a few months after starting work there, Bobby would be dismissed indefinitely. Well, I should hope so. Definitely, and not only indefinitely, but permanently would be really in your best interest. Yeah, not a great track record there. Oh my God, this is horrifying. Right. So Bobby, I'm sure, was super frustrated with these actions. She would eventually file a $22,000 claim to Workman's Comp based on the stabbing. 
However, this claim would be dismissed after the health center obtained Bobby's self-mutilation records from Illinois, as well as her psychiatric records solidifying the fact that she was borderline schizophrenic who suffered from Munchausen syndrome. Oh, wow. So pay attention to me because I'm injured or I'm sick or I have, I see things or whatever. Right. She must so, have needed the attention in some capacity. I have, I have all the empathy for people who have mental illness. But when you know that you have mental illness and you know that you're harming people, at some point, I don't know, is there some way that they can say, I need someone to stop me? Right. And she had admitted herself prior to her move to Florida. So that seemed promising. But I don't know if it was just she was so wrapped up and then guilty about the loss of custody of her son that she really couldn't control herself. You know, I don't know how strict she was on taking her medication in a timely manner. In my opinion, it sounds like she really wasn't. So I don't know if that had, you know, if there's multiple layers to what was going on in her brain. Hmm. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. So and we talked about Munchausen syndrome. Now you may recognize the syndrome by name, but if anybody's listening that doesn't have any idea, it's a mental condition where a person repeatedly seeks medical attention for falsified, exaggerated, or self-inflicted physical symptoms or injuries. So this would explain the stab wound and all of Bobby's other claims that she escaped, or so she thought, by moving to Florida from Illinois, and her ex-husband's claims about her son overdosing kind of make more sense now as well they sure do don't they i mean you start seeing it in hindsight and you think oh that's where it started there's the connection the light bulb goes off right so maybe it started out as munchausen by proxy and then it sort of just worked its way into well you know i can only get away with that for so long so i better get my own medical attention now yeah that's my thoughts on the whole scenario as well and Just to blow your mind a little, I would like to quickly go through the medical emergencies Bobby went through that made her record so alarming to investigators. I said earlier that she was hospitalized more than five times while in Illinois after losing custody of her son. So she was admitted for fibroid stomach tumors. She had to be admitted for a hysterectomy and removal of her ovaries. She was admitted for surgery on a broken arm that failed to heal properly gallbladder issues, ulcers, and she also was admitted for pneumonia. Good grief. So she does have a lot of really intricate problems that she's been dealing with. Absolutely. how, How do you get from the point where I have legitimate medical issues to I'm stabbing myself because I want someone to pay attention to me? I don't know where that breakdown goes or where it takes someone because clearly she was on, in my mind, she was on a speeding train that was coming up on a crash and there was no way for her to stop it. Yeah, it sounds like it was just getting completely out of her control. Definitely. So she would be reported in her short period of time working for a nursing home in Illinois right before she moved to faint randomly and often with no underlying cause. And they also found her twice bleeding heavily from mutilating her own genitals with scissors. Oh, Jesus Christ. Oh, right. If y'all could see that face right now. On to that. Oh, I, I'm so cringy right now. I know. Uh, I mean, obviously she she needed help, but holy shit, how do you do that to yourself? And that's my next point because she would have to have surgery for the second mutilation, and Bobby would admit to a nurse while waiting for surgery that she stabbed herself due to her infertility diagnosis. 
And I just want to speak from personal experience. Infertility is something that I am personally very open about and have struggled with myself. And I would absolutely never even think about hurting myself because of it. It's just not an extreme that I would even see myself approaching. I think that she just has that side of her that is self-destructive. Yes. She's got this self-destructive aspect to her personality where everything she's done so far... I mean, yes, she she was definitely given a lot of short sticks. You know, she got all the short straws. She got a lot of bad things that she had no control over. But then she took her circumstances and she turned it into, well, let's fuck things up a little more. Let's exactly. see what else I can take down with me. Right. So, and very be- self-destructive. And I just couldn't relate to that because I've been through it. It sucks. It's yes, not something that I wish on my worst enemy, but it's not something that I would ever think about stabbing myself over. Right. Right. Because there, are, obviously you don't want to make light or diminish someone else's experience because that's a devastating thing for some people other people it may not be as much but for some people who want to be able to have a child that can be a devastating thing so you don't want to make light of that but on the other hand there's a whole world there's a whole life there there must be other things that you can do to try and take some of that pain away other than stab your own genitals with scissors. Exactly. And I know this was in the 80s, so technology wasn't as advanced as it is now. Because I can say personally, I've made it through that. And I do have a son. So, Ray. <laughs> But I didn't get stuck on the fact and dwell in my own sadness. You know, I looked for a solution. And again, I realize it was 1985. So things were a little bit different. But still. And, and therapy was different. And mental health care was completely different. It was all stigmatized. And, you know, nobody would admit what was wrong because they didn't really have any support system. Yeah, absolutely. So just to bring us back to where we left off in Bobby's twisted story, on January 31st, 1985, Bobby would finally be admitted to a hospital for medical and psychiatric treatment. And she was the prime suspect for several of the deaths at North Horizon. And investigators would obtain exhumation orders for nine bodies, and some of those were in Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, and Texas. So not even any of the states we've discussed. Oh my God. I didn't even know she'd been in those states. And she left right. a trail in all these states that we didn't even know she was. Definitely. Oh then God. two weeks later, Bobby's nursing license would be suspended, which caused her to be admitted to the hospital again. And shortly thereafter, a spokesman of the Florida Department of Professional Regulation, or DPR, urged the state's Board of Nursing for a permanent revocation order and deemed Bobby an immediate, serious danger to the public health, safety, and welfare. Say that that sounds absolutely true. And as it should be. Yeah. Oh my God. So she lost her license. Was she indicted or taken, you know... Am I jumping ahead too far? (laughs) I tend to do that. Sorry. (laughs) So does Sam. So it's okay. But that means we're on the same brainwave here. So that's all good. Yeah, she was not happy with the news. She would demand a formal hearing. In the interim, she would marry some random 38-year-old man named Ron. And this marriage was just no good news for her. So she was out. She had gotten out on bond. And then her new husband realized very quickly that he was concerned and he admitted her to a psychiatric facility against her will. And this is when the Board of Nursing would actually suspend her nursing license indefinitely and would only reinstate it upon successful psychiatric treatment, which 
I don't necessarily agree with. Should have been revoked permanently. But things do get better. And eventually in March of 1985, Bobby would be formally charged with attempted murder of Anna Larson. But unfortunately, at the time of her arrest, she and her husband were living in a roadside tent that would dig up no supporting evidence. But a little light in the story here, a search was performed on her prior residence and this produced sufficient evidence to indict her on four counts of murder. So she would be held without bond in this scenario and await her trial for the deaths of Aggie Marsh, Lethe McKnight, Stella Branham, and Mary Cartwright. Her official trial would be postponed several times due to legal maneuvers and psychiatric testing. But finally, in February of 1988, Bobby Terrell would plead guilty to reduced charges of second-degree murder and would ultimately be deemed insane and would be sentenced to 65 years in prison. She would only serve 22 years of her sentence and would pass away in prison on August 27, 2007. Well, at least she wasn't able to hurt anybody else. But you know, you said she married this guy, Ron, and then it wasn't good for her. And I wonder what Ron was thinking. He's like, what in the hell have I got myself into? Yep. I I can't even imagine just the whirlwind of shit that he was thrown into at that point. Seriously, yes. And at least he got her committed. said, look, something is wrong with this lady. I I don't know how to handle her. Someone finally took action. Help! (laughs) Someone take her off my hands! Oh my gosh. And what year did you say that she died in prison? She died in 2007. Okay, so all of the people that she was suspected of killing, the only four that she was actually held accountable for were the four that you listed. Yep, that's correct. And all those other ones that she probably either murdered or tried to murder, they got no justice. Yep, they didn't have enough sufficient evidence, which I think would include her son that she lost custody to as well, because that was attempted murder right there. Yeah. Did she? I doubt. I'm sure she didn't, because why would she? Was she able to maintain any kind of relationship with her son? Or did he just write her off after that event? As far as I was able to find in my research, the father did a really great job of kind of keeping him separate from her. Yeah. You know, considering her mental health. So I didn't see any evidence of a relationship between the two of them. And probably for the best. Yeah, I mean, I don't want to say good because I'm sure that losing that relationship probably made her worse than she would have been otherwise. But it would have been a danger to him, for him to keep that relationship. Yeah, absolutely. Wow. So what was her last name again? Terrell. Bobby Terrell. Wow, that that was a really disturbing story. Because like you said, to have someone who's there specifically to help you through a difficult time when you're sick or you're aging and you're starting to move in the direction of not being able to take care of yourself anymore and then to have someone who's supposed to take care of you and then just willy-nilly oh I think I'll murder you today right someone you're supposed to be able to trust because they have a license yeah that's insane that's insane and I oh that was really upsetting. That's very I'm upsetting. Sorry. I'm you sorry. You made me upset, <laughs> Tiffany. <laughs> and I, that's your and job, I, so. <laughs> yeah, and I want to say that I didn't want to admit this in my notes. I had taken it out probably like three separate times, but I was drawn to this case not only because it was in Florida, it was just wild and insane, but also her and I share a birthday of October 16th. Oh my God, you know what? That's my mom's birthday too. 
Oh, wow. That's insane. <laughs> so you're a Libra. <laughs> yes, I am. <laughs> through and through. <laughs> wow. Well, you got a couple months before your birthday. Mine's on Monday. I'm oh. turning 192. <laughs> <laughs> well, happy early birthday. You look so great. <laughs> well, thank you. It's, it's, it's not easy being 192. I just hope I don't run into Bobby Terrell when I get into the old folks' home. <laughs> yeah. I think you have pretty good chances you won't. <laughs> yeah, I guess you, you're probably right about that. <laughs> Okay, so that was a great story. Thank you for telling us that. I am going to bring you an upper story with a bunch of survivors. Good, we need However, it. I'm sure that you know how hard it can be to find information on survivors, and this story is no exception. We really don't know very much at all about the backgrounds on our survivors, so I'm just going to tell you what happened to them. Okay. Now, we're starting out in Australia. I was in Australia last week with Carmen from Live, Laugh, Murder, and here I am in Australia again. So I guess <laughs> I should change my podcast name to True Crime Australia B&B. <laughs> but on Saturday, July the 26th, 2014, Luke Convery and his girlfriend, Rebecca Rook, both 21, had spent the whole day out doing things together in and around Newcastle, New South Wales, Australia, and that was where they lived. They visited the historic Maitland Jail, which is spelled G-A-O-L, the old-fashioned way, the wow. old-timey way. <laughs> this is a historic jail that's open to visitors and tourists, and you can go there and just spend the day. So they had a tiring but nice day, and in the evening, the two made last-minute decision to go visit Rebecca's older sister's home just to stop in and say hello for a few minutes. Well, Rebecca's sister, Natasha Cameron, shared a home with her boyfriend, James Myers, Natasha and James were both 30, and they had started dating in early 2014 after Natasha had left her previous partner of nine years at the end of 2013. The previous relationship had ended badly, and she had something called an apprehended violence order taken out against her previous partner, Barry Kevin Popeji. This is basically a no-contact order. But Natasha and James got along very well. They were enjoying their time together, and life was looking up for Natasha after all the chaos of nearly a decade of being with Barry Pulpje. Oh, I'm so glad she got out of it. He's just kind of a nightmare. The four, Luke and Rebecca, James and Natasha, just watched a movie. They were talking. They started to wind down. The younger couple hadn't been planning to stay over, but because they were tired from all the daytime activities, the two 21-year-olds just kind of stretched out on couches in the living room, and the two 30-year-olds went in and got ready to go to sleep in their bedroom. They had just made a last-minute decision to crash for the night, and then they were going to head home in the morning. During the night, the four had all fallen asleep where they laid down, and the house was quiet, and everybody was comfortably resting. None of them had the first idea that Barry Popjay, Natasha's ex-partner, had been skulking around outside for hours in a black hoodie, just seething and waiting for them to let down their guard so he could strike. Oh, that's so scary. It just is. to think about it. Just imagine this creepy guy just wandering around outside the house for hours, just peeking through the windows, watching what they're doing. Thank God for cameras and security. It gives me the creeps every time I think about a story like that. After the house went dark, Pope J managed to find an unlocked window, climbed through it into the kitchen, and made it all the way into the house without being detected. When he got in, just after 2 a.m., he had brought along with him a 22 caliber pump-action rifle. As he crept through the house... He first came upon the pair asleep on the living room couches. Assuming he had found Natasha and James, he crept up behind Luke and without hesitation shot him twice in the back of the head. Now James is the 21-year-old. Oh, man. Although he didn't know either James or Luke, it took him only a moment to realize he had probably not shot James but a younger visitor 
and Pope G went out in search of the true target for his jealous rage, James. So he went on, searched through the house, went into the main bedroom where James and Natasha were sleeping. James had heard the first gunshot from the living room, which had awakened him, but in his groggy state after 2 a.m., he wasn't quite sure what he had heard. I don't know if you've ever heard a loud noise while you were sound asleep and then you were like what the hell was that you know was that in my dream or was that for real yeah but see with my true crime background at this point my senses (laughs) would be heightened because maybe so in the past but now absolutely not i'm up i'm awake i'm checking cameras i'm nudging my husband to say get up and go check it out good for you you will survive when all the rest of us have been murdered by home invaders (laughs) (laughs) after james heard the second shot he had no doubt that somebody was obviously in the house. And he had first frozen to listen, to hear what else he could hear, and then he just sat straight up in the bed. As he sat in confusion, trying to make sense of what he'd heard, he suddenly flinched as someone kicked open the bedroom door. The light glared on. All James could see in the sudden glare was a solid-built man, dressed all in dark clothing, with a blondish goatee sticking out of his hoodie. The intruder stood right over the bed, with the rifle pointing down towards the bed. He raised the rifle, and instantly James felt an impact to his face. He said he felt the hot bullets smashing through his face and bone, tearing his flesh. Natasha was lying completely still in the bed, and James feared that Pobje had already shot her dead. James leaped out of the bed, knowing that to stay there would be giving in to being murdered. And he made the choice that if he was going to die, he was going down fighting. James grabbed a martial arts fighting stick and started shouting as loud as he could. Pope J backed out of the room, probably taken aback because he wasn't expecting anyone to fight back. Pope J was reloading the rifle as he retreated. James chased the man through the home. As they ran, James kept swinging the martial arts stick, and each time he swung it, Pope J shot him again. He was shot a second time in the face, a third time, a fourth, a fifth. And he's still standing? And he's still chasing. Oh my he's still God. Chasing this guy. Bob J got back to the kitchen and scrambled out through the same window that he had used to get in and disappeared into the night. Natasha and Rebecca frantically called for help, thinking that Luke was surely dead and James appeared to be close behind because he's bleeding all over his entire face. James decided that he better take his last opportunity to say goodbye to his two-year-old son who lived with his ex-partner. He called the ex-partner, told her he'd been shot in the face multiple times, and asked to speak to his son to tell him goodbye. His partner, receiving this seemingly crazy call at two o'clock in the morning, accused him of being drunk. James responded by texting her a photo of his bloody face, but by then the ambulance had arrived and took both men to the hospital. I saw your surprise look. Can you imagine getting that photo via text at 2.30 in the morning? Oh my gosh, that's a nightmare. And then to think that it's actually with somebody that you have a child with, I would be awestruck for sure but i don't think he did get to speak to his little boy he just sent the picture and then the ambulance showed up well thank god because he probably needed it luke was unbelievably still breathing and james was even still conscious when they arrived at the hospital james had five bullets in his face and head one had blasted through his teeth and was lodged under his tongue he had one in his nasal passage another in the bridge of his nose one was in the frontal region of his brain and the last one in his right temporal bone just above his jaw. So he's lucky it was only a twenty-two caliber, because if it had been a larger ammunition, there's no way he would have made it. You know, they no. would have gone further into his head, and he would have been 
he would have not survived this. He would have bled out on the scene, I'm sure. Yeah. So, yes, it was terrible what happened, but he, he lucked out in the weapon choice by the idiot home invader. James was taken into surgery, although not immediately. I saw a photo of him sitting in a waiting room with blood running out of his face. I'm imagining that when the two of them arrived, Luke was in far worse condition, so the medical teams needed to, you know, to take care of him first. But then James did get to go to surgery to stem the bleeding and try to remove the bullets. Ultimately, though, three of the bullets would have caused more damage and would have been too dangerous to remove, so two of the five were removed. He still has and will always have three 22 caliber slugs in his head. James, being a complete badass after chasing a man while being shot in the face, surviving the five gunshot wounds in his head, being admitted in serious but stable condition, then getting all he thought he could from medical treatment, decided after a day and a half that he'd rather avoid the risk of a hospital transmitted infection, and he checked himself out and went home. Whoa, that is ballsy. Yeah. Man, choosing to go home because of the risk of being infected further... And just winging it yourself, that's, I mean, he is a badass because he made it through that and he chose to just check himself yeah. out and heal on his own. Yep. Just, he's okay. Bye. <laughs> no Deuces. more <laughs> Deuces, I'm gone. <laughs> and Luke, Luke was a badass in his own way. He lay in a coma on life support for weeks. When he awoke, he was completely baffled about what had happened. He had no idea where he was. His family didn't want to tell him what had happened to him, fearing it would just cause even further emotional trauma. But finally, four days after he had awakened, his doctors finally spilled the beans so that he would understand why he was going through what he was going through, and so he could comprehend that he had a long, difficult road ahead of him. He had been shot twice in his head, both times from behind. One bullet lodged in the back of his jaw, and the other was inside his brain. Neither one could be removed without causing too much danger to Luke, so both of the bullets were left in place. After 10 weeks in the hospital, he was able to return home, but his convalescence was just beginning. His skull and brain were so fragile that he had to wear a helmet while he started to heal. He had hearing, vision, and cognitive impairment from his brain injury. Luke was only able to get around in a wheelchair for several months and had to completely relearn how to walk. Two years after the shooting, Luke still had no feeling in his left arm and the bullets will always remain in his head. He has PTSD that affects his sleep. Luke, however, made a choice to look for the positive side of his recovery from all of these traumatic injuries. He was taken care of every day by his mother and they became the best of friends, closer than ever before. He said he knew he had been a difficult teenager and remember he's only 21 now, so that was only a couple years ago that he was a difficult teenager. <laughs> But this experience with his mom made him appreciate her and all of his family. His mom had made him push further and further towards his goals, and that helped him get further along in his physical therapy. He also had the loving support of his dad, his stepmother, and his sister, all cheering him on and kicking him in the butt when he needed to be motivated. But a side note to Luke's story is that five years before Luke's shooting, a cousin of his had been shot and murdered in the area of Newcastle where the family had always felt at home and safe, as proud Novacostrians or Newcastle natives. So now, within five years, they had lost one young man and nearly lost a second one. And this is not an area where things like this are common. I'm sure that they have attacks and murders and things like that. But this one family had the same thing happen to them twice in five years. So they yeah. were quite invested in the continual healing and improvement for Luke, 
as he worked through his physical challenges and his emotional challenges too. Well, I'm so glad that he had such a great support system and you don't hear cases too often where the same thing happens within a couple years time to the exact same family. I know Sam and I have talked recently on our podcast about a scenario that she knows someone in real life that lost two of their children back to back in similar manners. Oh my and God, that's com- horrifying. Right. And completely different reasoning, but similar manners of death, unfortunately. And it, it's not too often. So I commend his family for supporting him and lifting him up because he definitely needed it, it sounds like. You're right. And Luke's aunt, Amanda O'Brien, said, quote, This is happening in Newcastle. It's not Sydney. It's not Redfern. It's not in America. This is Newcastle. He's a good boy, he's a kind boy, he's full of love, and he will get through this. And it's not fair that my family are crying again over another boy who's been shot. So you're right, his family had already been through this and they were like, okay, ramp up, we're doing this again. We're gonna, we're gonna stand behind him, we're gonna support him, and we're gonna get him through this. Yep, and he's gonna make it through. As for Barry Pobji, the 31-year-old perpetrator, he had worn dark clothing and pulled up his hoodie but he had not really even tried to disguise his identity. I guess he assumed nobody would survive and wouldn't be able to identify him. Right, but, but didn't he think that, you know, his ex might be able to help identify him? He may have intended to kill her too. Yeah, that's true. The women did quickly identify him to police as the perpetrator and he was caught in the area shortly after the shootings took place. At the time he was apprehended, he was still carrying the 22 caliber pump action rifle wrapped in his jacket and the rifle was reportedly out of ammunition. So when James was chasing him through the house, he got him five times, but he was shooting wild shots mm-hmm. and just wasted all of his ammunition. But right. he did have a 37 additional rounds of ammo in his vehicle. He also had on his person a folding knife. So related to what you just said, had James not chased him out of the bedroom while being shot at, it's very possible, verging on probable, that Pobji had the plan to also harm or kill Natasha for starting a new life without him. Because you I know how these so. guys are. Mm-hmm. They can't stand it. If they dump you, that's fine. But if you dump them, oh no, that's unacceptable. You don't get to tell me that we're done. What a double standard. There's, I mean, and that's the only one. There aren't any other double standards that we all have to tolerate. <laughs> <laughs> Pobji claimed he had been rat shit drunk. And that he had only intended to threaten James. Well, that's why you went in and shot the first guy you saw twice in the back of the head. That's just threatening James. He also And then claimed, continued, too. Yes. And then continued on with, oh, sorry, that wasn't my victim. That wasn't my intended target. Let me continue to find him. Yeah. Let me Real go drunk. through the whole house and find him. He also claimed not to remember at all having shot Luke. When he was picked up, Pop G reportedly said to officers, quote, you've got me now. I've fucked up. no shit (laughs) i would say you did little man he was charged with two counts of shoot with intent to murder two counts of committing a serious indictable offense special aggravated break and enter and possessing an unregistered firearm he was rightly denied bail the legal proceedings were drawn out over a period of several years but ultimately he was convicted of shoot with intent to murder and sentenced to more than 20 years in prison And I think he actually pled guilty, but I don't think it really did much for his sentence because the maximum sentence was 25 and he ended up with more than 20. 
So some of that was probably time served because it drew out over a period of years. He was convicted. He's spending his time in prison. I assume he's still there unless somebody has done something bad to him while he's been in prison. It's possible. But Luke and James have gotten past the worst of what they've been through. And I'm really proud of Luke for taking this terrible thing that happened to him and using that opportunity to renew and invigorate his relationship with his parents and his family and to find something positive in it because it's hard to do that. Sometimes it takes a real slap in the face for people to recognize how important their families are to them. Yeah, and I can't even imagine just being blindsided, you know, being in a happy new relationship with someone and having friends over and just being so unsuspecting to get shot in the head multiple times for two separate victims and, you know, waking up and not even realizing what happened and being in the hospital, coming out of a coma. It just blows my mind that he was able to withstand five shots to the face and continue to pursue this man. To try and get him apprehended because I could take a smack to the face and probably start crying in a corner. (laughs) (laughs) Not if you thought your family was at risk. It's true. I think adrenaline would definitely help me, but I, you know, I have a high tolerance for pain, but I've went through a couple knee injuries within the last eight months and those have seriously broken me down to my point of no return. So maybe I am a little stronger because of that, but I don't know how he did it, but I commend him. Well, knees are a special case because everything you do involves your knee. You know, you can't do anything that doesn't put pressure on your knees. So I I empathize with that. I've been through those too. But I'm old now and my knees are good. So you'll be okay. (laughs) And I'm I'm in my 30s. So I shouldn't be having these problems. Well, mine were in my 30s. I remember one time I was sitting on the floor with Bailey reading her a bedtime story. And I stood up and my knee went... Basically, it just tore all the cartilage in my knee. And they like, well, we could do surgery and take that out, but I don't see the point. And I'm like, okay, well, I'll just wear a brace. So, Oh, my gosh. The bedtime stories broke my knee. <laughs> <laughs> well, that was the story of Luke Convery and James Myers. And that's about all I have to tell you about them. Wow, what a story. What an awesome survival story. I can't believe they still have bullets in their skulls also you know every time they travel for the rest of their lives they're going to go through the metal detector and there's going to be beep on their heads yep and then they've got to tell them what's going on and i can't imagine the ptsd that comes along with having to retell that story in scenarios like that they're never going to be free of it no it's just not the sort of thing you just walk away from and forget about it absolutely not you have a constant reminder in your body which is awful and then james has got scars all over his face too from you know where they went into his face so he's still a sexy devil and he's out but regardless well you would think with his positive attitude that that would attract someone good in his life especially with the good relationship between him and his family now so i can't imagine that someone wouldn't fall for a great man like that yeah well and they both had a good sense of humor afterwards too and that i think humor saves a lot of people's lives you know, and I, I don't mean agree. that facetiously. I mean, I think it really does. Sometimes it's the only thing that gets people through today so that they can work on tomorrow. Tiffany, you did a great job telling your bad guy story today. I'm so oh. grateful that you were here today. Well, thanks, Beth. Thanks for lifting us up. Do you want to tell us how people can contact you or whatever they might want to do? 
Yeah, absolutely. Everybody can find us on Instagram. We're at Cola City Crime. And we also have a Facebook page that's facebook.com slash groups slash Cola City Crime. And if you want to send us some case suggestions, some cases local to North and South Carolina, you can reach out to our email. That's Cola City Crime at gmail.com. We also have a GoFundMe that's currently active. Unfortunately, my co-host lost her son tragically a couple months ago, and they're raising money to send some children to space camp, which is super exciting. Something that I always thought about as a kid was going to space camp would be super cool, and her son really wanted to do that this summer, so unfortunately he can't attend, but they have already raised enough money to send two kids to space camp, so they want to keep sending them every single year. So if y'all want to find the GoFundMe. It's actually on our post for the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, anywhere you can find us. And it's on our social media. I think that's amazing. And Sam seems like such a mama bear to do something for someone else's kids in honor of her son. So I think that's a beautiful thing to do. I really appreciate you being here today. You did a fantastic job. I know that my listeners well, probably most of them already know who you are because you probably have more listeners than I do. But no way. I was going to say, well, I was going to say we're almost like sister podcasts kind of growing up together at the same time. And, you know, we've been fed a friendship for quite a while now. So I really appreciate you having me on and being able to share a story outside of the Carolinas from my home state. <laughs> I had a lot of fun. So I really appreciate you having me on. Well, thank you very much for being here. I think that's the end of episode 76. Well, again, thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure, and I can't wait to hear it. Well, I can't wait to hear it either. Thank (laughs) you, Tiffany, and thank you, listeners. Please go follow Tiffany and Sam at Cola City Crime, and I will see you next week. Thanks, y'all. Bye. Bye. A hospital transmitted affection, which would be something completely different. (laughs) (laughs) Doctor patient love. (laughs) Sorry, I was I muted myself because my computer kicked up. You're okay. <laughs> I was like, oh, what happened? <laughs> I'm just done talking now. You have to take the whole rest of the show. Seriously.